thank you very much for coming uh, uh, after a, uh, a wonderful day of lecturing, I hope, and interactions. Uh, this is uh, a very uh, meaningful program, and I am the <coughs> chairman of the uh, Poster Scientific Abstract and Research Committee here at Payne Week and have been since the past 11 years, so I thank all of you for coming. This track here, today we're going to talk about benzodiazepine and Z drugs for uh, pain patients, the problem of prolonged withdrawal symptoms. And uh, we have two very uh, uh, distinguished lecturers uh, with me today, Dr. Robert Raffa, um, who is uh, one of the leading uh, analgesic drug developers in the world, and uh, Dr. Stephen Wright, again, a leading thought uh, leader and key opinion leader, not only in pain medicine, but also in um, withdrawal medicine, and, and which is becoming a, uh, a rather large area. And uh, you see that at this conference, uh, there is a newly approved drug um, for opioid withdrawal syndrome. So this is becoming a more and more um, advancing type of uh, uh, scenario. Here are disclosures. Um, and uh, all of the slides are available uh, online. So uh, the uh, presentation um, is supported by the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Reform, uh, whose mission is in the improvement of benzodiazepine prescribing practices. These are the learning objectives that we're going to try to go over today, and uh, we're going to introduce you, I think, to some new concepts that we need to be cognizant of as we manage our pain patients, particularly those who are on benzodiazepines. So we're going to uh, go through these learning objectives, and we're going to try to save some time for question and answer at the end as well. Any of you who are um, prescribing opioids uh, know this black box warning um, and understand that the concomitant use of a benzodiazepine with an opioid can potentiate a clinically relevant pharmacodynamic drug-drug event. And it's important to realize that CNS depression can take place. It can decrease respiratory drive, which can lead to um, uh, potential uh, opioid-induced respiratory depression and ultimately apnea and overdose and death. So it's very important uh, to understand why patients, chronic pain patients who are on chronic opioid therapy would um, be exposed to a benzodiazepine. And it may be because of uh, anxiolytic and maybe there's a different prescriber, maybe a psychiatrist who's not a pain uh, psychiatrist who's prescribing. It could be their family uh, medicine doctor. So it's always important to be looking at your um, uh, statewide election, uh, electrical, uh, electronic um, prescribing databases uh, to see and make sure that no one else is prescribing these. It's also very important to understand why. It's not uncommon that um, still in the United States, uh, individuals get prescribed benzodiazepines as muscle relaxants for pain. Um, and so, again, there really has been no data to um, quantitatively substantiate that indication. As you go further at looking in the warnings precautions for both the immediate release and extended release opioids, you'll find uh, call-outs like this, particularly in special populations, uh, particularly in the elderly. And the concern here is related to the potentiation of overdose and death. If we actually look at uh, certain reports, there's a very interesting report out there from comparing time periods of 2010 to 2014, listing the top 10 medications that are responsible uh, for overdose. And what you'll find in both those sets of years is that 
the opioid may be different. Example, oxycodone in 2010 was the number one uh, reason uh, for uh, overdose related to opioids. In 2014, it was heroin. And if you look in the top five, you find a benzodiazepine. So it's not just opioids that are uh, involved in, quote, overdose deaths. Uh, CDC data um, shows that, and they uh, are very much keen on trying to have appropriate opioid prescribing and opioid consumption, and uh, they want you to be aware that co-prescribing can uh, potentially lead to these uh, serious um, adverse events. So there's lots of leg regulatory, legal, uh, research um, uh, type of opportunities that we need to be aware of. And what we're finding is that the story might be even a little uh, more complex. And that's what uh, Dr. Raff is going to tell us a little about um, when it comes to prolonged withdrawal symptoms related to benzodiazepines. Um, and there may be questions uh, that, that will come out of meetings like this related to do we need to be changing the scheduling of these drugs? Do these drugs need a REMS? You know, what is the best way for us to be able to use these drugs and yet um, provide a safe and effective opportunity for our patients? So with that, I'm going to kick it off uh, by introducing Dr. Stephen Wright, again, a, uh, a renowned uh, key opinion leader and subject matter expert in this area. So thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. So my name is Steve. I'm a recovering benzodiazepine overprescriber. <laughs> Come on now, you guys know the drill. <laughs> Hi, my name is Steve. I'm a recovering benzodiazepine overprescriber. Much better, much better. So I grew up in Ohio, a uh, strong codependency background. Uh, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's environmental, uh, but I certainly refined it to, you know, fine art. Uh, form for myself. So, of course, I entered into family medicine, residency graduate in 1982. I started doing addiction medicine about 31 years ago this year when a group came down to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I was working, and I, they were looking to put in a treatment center, and I was looking for extra work. I told them I had no training, no experience, didn't inhale, got the job. Loved it. Loved working with uh, individuals with the disease of addiction, and then started into doing medical pain management about uh, 15 years ago as well such an important area, and along the way, benzodiazepines came along as a companion, but I didn't think a whole lot about that, and uh, uh, you know, after all, uh, it was harder to deal with uh, individuals coming off of uh, benzodiazepines than to let things go. I had to look at the opioids first, uh, but now that we've had some new information about the significant challenges, I've taken a closer look, and out there actually is a group of individuals uh, very much online uh, they call themselves the benzodiazepine uh, survivors, and it's a universe of individuals who are challenged by the adverse consequences as, uh, as well as by the adverse uh, uh, withdrawal processes that are involved. So how did we actually uh, get here? Well, in 1955, Leo Sternbach identified and uh, chloridized epoxide, uh, put it into animal studies in 1957, found anxiolysis, and it came on to uh, being uh, uh, marketed in 1960. Right after that, in a single year, severe withdrawal was identified by Leo Hollister. This was soon followed by diazepam, uh, marketed, of course, as uh, Valium, which became uh, the best-selling uh, drug of any type from 1968 to 1981. 
So we figured out that there were problems along the way. It became rescheduled, uh, or actually scheduled for the first time, Schedule 4 in 1975, where it sits today. Uh, and there was a lot of work that was done, particularly by Malcolm Later and Heather Ashton uh, back in the day. And uh, uh, Dr. Later had a review in 1983 that largely stands today. The Beers List, as you recall, came out in 1991 with particular concerns around uh, benzodiazepines. And then in the year 2000, the Ashton Manual, which I highly recommend for you and for uh, the laypersons uh, to take a look at because it's a good guide, it's a good description of all the challenges that are involved. So how does this look? Uh, when the United States, about 6% of us, has received a benzodiazepine prescription in the last year. Canada, 4%. Europe uh, varies across the, uh, uh, the continent there, 4 to 16%. And, of course, there are a number of factors that are associated with prescribing, as you would expect, anxiety and insomnia, but also pain in general, chronic uh, medical conditions in general, being, being female, white, retired, low income, elderly in particular, uh, who are especially vulnerable to the effects of benzodiazepines. Smoking is an indicator, poor health, more than one prescriber, uh, highlighting the need to take a look at the prescription database online. And what's interesting is that computer, computer prescribing actually increased the prescribing of benzodiazepines. When we make it easier to do this, uh, more medications come, uh, are, are written for. Non-medical use has sort of been the attention for a lot of us in the field of addiction. Uh, and probably in the range, it's difficult to nail down this number, about 1% to 2% of individuals, much higher in the high school population. Uh, of the individuals that are using uh, benzodiazepines non-medically, which really means that I'm using it for a reason other than for which it is prescribed, this uh, about 8 to 10 percent of individuals and about 0.2 percent uh, of the general population might be considered uh, as having the disease of uh, benzodiazepine addiction. But I look at that particular number and find it uh, peculiar. It doesn't ring true with my practice. Doing addiction medicine for 31 years, I had a single patient over that entire period of time who I felt very confident uh, had the disease of uh, uh, benzodiazepine addiction. Why do we see that kind of a disconnect? Well, the disconnect occurs because very often inappropriate use of benzodiazepines is because of trying to augment other, uh, uh, other substances like alcohol or to ameliorate the, uh, the side effects or to damp out uh, the extreme highs of a stimulant, uh, things like that. Uh, and the benzodiazepines, of course, are not all built alike. Uh, some have more addiction liability than others. Uh, for example, alprazolam uh, fits within that category. The Z drugs uh, have come on the scene. They are also active at the GABA receptor uh, and used for insomnia predominantly. Uh, but it turns out that they're not first line. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, is first line. It is how, they are, however, preferred over benzodiazepines because their side effect profile is improved in that regard. There's a list of them, and, uh, and of course, there's a lot of sedative-related side effects, uh, and there's sleep walking, sleep eating, sleep driving, sleep sex, go figure, uh, that can occur with these things as well. We really have built a society around medications, you know, a little Red Bull in the morning, something to sleep at night. Uh, but this is kind of the lives that we have, uh, uh, even for individuals that aren't necessarily uh, taking uh, prescription medications for a variety of reasons. 
in pain management, uh, uh, the prevalence of benzodiazepine prescribing is far greater than we see in the general population. In 2001, 9% of, uh, of the pain management population were on opioids. 2013, about 17% uh, uh, on opioids. Bonnard actually uh, published just this last week a study which reflects 21%. So one out of five individuals in pain management are on a benzodiazepine in addition to their opioids. Uh, there are significant risks, of course, with co-prescribing with opioids. Uh, emergency room, hospital admissions are, 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 quite, uh, are quite prominent. They are involved with at least one out of three opioid-related deaths. And this is some old data from 2013. There's actually additional data. Dasgupta took a look at this, uh, for, uh, looking at North Carolina data. In that particular data, the overdose deaths were associated 80% level. 80% of those individuals were taking uh, benzodiazepines in addition, to the, uh, uh, in addition to the opioids. So the question comes up, why in pain management? Of course, we're more likely to see anxiety uh, and insomnia in that particular context, but it brings up the question, you know, is there an analgesic effect? And there really uh, is data that suggests that it's not there. Uh, the reviews are largely unfavorable for uh, spine pain. It's ineffective for uh, radiculopathy and the evidence-based literature. Centralized pain, there's some potential there. However, uh, very little uh, hints in terms of a direct analgesic benefit for uh, benzodiazepines. Perhaps some hints uh, when it comes to pain associated with multiple sclerosis and burning mouth syndrome. But it is, uh, and there's some anecdotal information with regards to pelvic pain as well. But the information is very sparse and it really should not be uh, up on the list for analgesia for these individuals. Here are the overdose death rates that have been climbing uh, as well. This is for, related to benzodiazepines. Uh, the male line is orange, female uh, yellow. This has been climbing uh, and can, uh, continues to climb. What about then sleep and anxiety within pain management? Well, there is a bidirectional association, which means that insomnia and anxiety uh, are associated with increased pain and vice versa. Pain uh, problems are associated with more and more anxiety. The prevalence is probably greater than 50% in the population uh, with significant problems with anxiety and, and uh, insomnia uh, for these individuals, particularly the female, uh, particularly the elderly. Quality of life goes down, uh, disability increased, uh, uh, and there are significant challenges with uh, sleep disorder uh, breathing uh, in this particular context. So just as a part of definition, uh, anxiety has traditionally been described as the feeling Worry is the thought, uh, and it's important to recognize that not all anxiety fits the diagnosis of anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorder is really reserved for individuals with anxiety problems that fit into one of the categories like generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, uh, panic disorder, and so forth. For uh, anxiety that uh, persists more than six months, impairs function, and is an anxiety that is a perception of a threat that is greater than the actual threat itself over time. So how do we look at that? Looking at anxiety a little more closely, well, we look for the anxiety generator, not unlike the pain generator, excepting uh, this is, uh, you know, certainly we're not looking for a structural history, history, physical exams, studies, prior medical records, family, friends, uh, uh, that sort of thing. We want to determine the diagnosis. It may well be simple anxiety I'm worried about, uh, an exam coming up, I'm worried about this. Uh, certainly those are not 
uh, things that ought to be treated aggressively with medications, or the DSM-5 uh, define anxiety-related disorders. And then we have to define the severity and the need to treat. Is this something that is persistent over a long period of time, the six-month criteria? Is it sufficiently disabling in terms of the function that requires some sort of treatment? Of course, treatment doesn't necessitate uh, the, the need to use medications, but treatment of some sort. So Mark Twain said, I've had a great many troubles in my life, most of which didn't happen. That's the transient or what we call state anxiety uh, that a lot of us experience, all of us experience. It's a valuable experience for all of us because we have to be wary of our environment. There is uh, uh, concerns about the, a variety of uh, potentially threatening uh, things that we need to pay attention to and, and can't dismiss because that's important for our caretaking as well. So uh, it was actually Nietzsche who said, whatever doesn't, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger, joy and suffering are inseparable. But that's wrong, uh, because that indeed, uh, you know, anxiety has consequences. So plowing on through uh, without addressing it is not necessarily a good idea for state or transient anxiety. Yes, you can certainly develop an increased strength in relation to dealing with those factors in life. But the brain changes, quality of life goes down, function goes down, there's sympathetic hyperarousal, which can lead to cardiac events, sexual dysfunction, suicidality uh, is important, particularly in PTSD, discognition and financial burden, the list goes on and on. And it's important to recognize that when we invoke some sort of treatment, we need to balance off the risk of allowing the anxiety to continue as is unaddressed versus the risks that are associated with the treatment processes we might invoke. So the treatment principles are, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this, uh, does it work? Does it work without side effects? And if there are side effects, uh, are they manageable? You know, Hippocrates said, primum non nocere, first do no harm. Well, that's a lie, uh, actually. Uh, you know, first of all, he is Greek, and that's a Latin phrase. Second is that we do harm all the time. You know, I do economic harm to every patient that I see. I give medications with side effects. I refill those side effects if they're manageable. It really is do less harm, and we need to look at it in that regard. But there's another paradigm that we need to watch out for that becomes particularly important with benzodiazepines. Do they work over a long period of time, the durability factor, and do side effects uh, evolve over a period of time? I grew up in an era way back in the day where we kind of felt, you know, were delivered the information that the side effects didn't develop over a two or three month period of time. Whatever shows up later should be addressed as something new or something, uh, something different. So then we, in our medical decision making and in our informed consent, need to take a look at the risks, benefits, and alternatives. So in with regards to benzodiazepines, I count about 132 different uh, side effects that are potential. And you can probably play these out uh, as well as I can. They involve sedation, dizziness, vertigo, fatigue. There's a lot of issues in uh, relation to discognition, uh, confusion, anterograde amnesia, of course. Uh, psychomotor impairment with driving and accidents are important as well. And then there's this interesting phenomenon of disinhibition with possibility of paradoxical effects. They're called paradoxical because they're opposite of what the original intention where the agent is, where individuals can become more excitable, more irritable, more aggressive, and violence and hostility has been associated with that. Other mood effects uh, can involve emotional blunting. Whatever uh, shrouds out the intensity of my anxiety is going to shroud out other things as well, the good stuff as well, mania, 
depression, suicidality, and of course, uh, all uh, substances of potential dependence really kind of uh, have this uh, effect of tolerance and withdrawal that's associated with, us, with us. And it's really important to separate out the issue of physiologic dependence, which has uh, physical features as well as psychological features where I get used to a medication, and if I take it away, uh, then, uh, uh, then the uh, withdrawal uh, pattern kind of results. And, and so that's not the definition of addiction, certainly. You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, dependent upon oxygen, for example. If you take that away, I don't do very well. I, if I'm on a beta blocker, you take that away, I don't do very well at all. And of course, respiratory depression is really important because that's related to overdose and overdose death. And I figured out a trick that I, I was not aware of, as you know, because we end up with this uh, ongoing debate with patients. You know, I don't think you ought to be on this, and they say, I've been on it forever, and, and therefore it's okay kind of a thing. What we need is an objective uh, piece of information. And uh, it took me a while. You know, if I hadn't been a forceps delivery, I could be able to figure this stuff out better. But I figured it out that you know, I can do overnight oximetries and see if somebody in an objective way is at risk, a sleep study, and started to use that so that I have some data that is really firm and uh, to, to identify this is the real risk for you. I'm not making it up. It's not simply in my opinion versus your opinion. And then, of course, uh, overall mortality of uh, great concern to us as well. Over time, we may see depression evolve, discognition, even de uh, dementia. Uh, we're still sorting that out in terms of direct causal effect. Addiction can develop over a period of time. Addiction is defined as compulsion, loss of control, continuation of adverse with adverse consequences in place. Uh, this is very rarely associated with the disease of, uh, with the use of benzodiazepines. Uh, but there is a new phenomenon, at least new to me, of sensitization of the central nervous system. And Bob is probably going to be talking a bit about that, kindling and wind-up, which results in uh, such interesting things as the original anxiolysis that uh, benzodiazepines may produce may actually ultimately over time result in increased anxiety, a benzodiazepine-induced hyperangiogenesis, just in the same way we see uh, hyperalgesia associated with opioids. So we have neurologic syndrome, uh, syndromes. Uh, uh, there may be a pain syndrome associated with that and protracted withdrawal. And get this, uh, this was new to me as well. There is some association with benzodiazepines and cancer uh, as well. So we have then the issue of withdrawal. Uh, so if the efficacy isn't there, the side effects are there. We really want to remove this agent over a period of time. But uh, stopping the medications abruptly gives you the acute withdrawal. And the tapering process, as I'll discuss, is a better way to do this. But we can have what's called post-acute withdrawal syndrome or pause that can go on for months or years or even permanently for some of these individuals. Lots of symptoms, and I've clustered them into three basic groups, psychiatric-related. Look at this. It's anxiety, of course, uh, neuro, uh, neurophysiologic. Uh, there there are, are indeed electric shock sensations, and there's pain associated with that, somatic symptoms. Uh, what might seem somewhat separate are, are these somatic uh, uh, symptoms like chest pain, nausea, and vomiting, but they can be related, and of course, death. And death is most obvious to those of us working in the field in relation to abrupt withdrawal of benzodiazepines and intractable seizures that uh, can occur. There are a variety of patterns that occur for individuals that are in the withdrawal process. What we hope for, uh, but don't necessarily see, is a sort of a gradual decline in severity over time. 
but some individuals will have this protracted withdrawal where they have severe symptoms that may last indefinitely. And then there's a pattern that shows up as well where there's an initial decline and then increasing severity after that initial decline. That's going to be confusing because a lot of us are going to consider that perhaps the uh, anxiety disorder has reinstated itself uh, in terms of a relapse. Uh, and then another pattern which is really quite unusual to me, I, I can only recall that cocaine does this at all, uh, at all in terms of the withdrawal process where you can kind of get these spikes after the withdrawal has taken place. But here you can have these spiking uh, pathways of uh, symptoms that accelerate periodically for no apparent reason uh, for these individuals, makes it indeed quite confusing on a clinical basis to identify what's going on. What about the benefits? Well, uh, there, it is first line for uh, intractable seizures, status epilepticus, procedure amnestic, alcohol withdrawal, certain benzodiazepine, uh, certain uh, behavioral emergencies also fall in line. There are other uh, uh, benefits as well, movement disorders, muscle relaxation, anxiety states, and insomnia too. And what we found in relation to anxiety, because that, uh, talking about anxiety in particular, because that appears to be what we are using this for predominantly, short-term benefit uh, really has been well demonstrated, but benefit often declines after that initial benefit. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, there's a lot of uh, recommendations to not use these agents for any more than uh, two, to, uh, two to three weeks. And indeed, long-term efficacy has not been established in the literature. Uh, there are some complaint, uh, there, there are claims of utility by some of the experts out there, but it's not been altogether established. What are the alternatives? Well, we have pharmacologics, and they hit the range from all the receptors, adrenergic, monoamine, serotonin, uh, and on down the line. What I find is interesting is the plant-based medicines as well. Uh, of course, uh, cannabis is of interest to the field as well, uh, but we, we, we don't have great studies to speak to that issue. But what I found was particularly interesting is that lavender in a small study uh, was compared favorably to uh, lorazepam uh, for these individuals. What's really cool about it, though, too, is that it appears lavender doesn't work at the GABA receptor. And it seems like the GABA receptor and uh, you know, effects on that may be really important in terms of these protracted uh, symptomatic states on benzodiazepines and withdrawal states as well. Of course, a lot of non-pharmacologics, I divide this into self-directed after training. So for, for example, movement meditation uh, like Tai Chi and Qigong, uh, mindfulness meditation professionally directed like CBT uh, as well. So what are the recommendations in terms of how we do this in, in practice? So crisis level anxiety, benzodiazepines, unless it's associated with psychosis, uh, in that case, uh, second generation antipsychotics. For anxiety disorders that are established uh, short term, uh, but interestingly enough, cognitive behavioral therapy works at least as well as benzodiazepines. Uh, it just takes a while for it to, uh, to get into effect. Acceptance and commitment therapy, another psychotherapeutic process similar to CBT in that regard. But anxiety that's associated with PTSD and OCD, it appears to be ineffective for that anxiety uh, as well. And it's interesting that DSM-5 now has separated OCD and PTSD away from the anxiety disorders because it is a compilation of uh, issues that are separate and away from anxiety, doesn't necessarily have anxiety. 
but we see that the possibility of PTSD in benzodiazepines can actually be quite negative because benzodiazepines are disinhibiting and this could allow for the presentation of even violent behavior, inappropriate behavior by these, uh, uh, by these individuals. So what do I recommend? Well, on initial uh, considerations of benzodiazepines, uh, recommend avoiding and certainly avoid in PTSD and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, however, uh, initiate uh, if there is severe function limiting anxiety or insomnia, primarily as a bridge uh, to other therapies to get them going. Limit the use for two to four weeks. And for those that are already on the agents, do not make the assumption uh, that the individuals that have still some symptoms of anxiety uh, are only partially treated by benzodiazepines. It may well be that there's this thing, uh, benzodiazepine-induced hyperanxiogenesis, where the benzodiazepines are causing it. Also, do not uh, make the assumption that people that are struggling with uh, benzodiazepines have the disease of addiction. It's the wrong diagnosis and wrong treatment for the vast, vast majority of these, uh, these individuals. And you will upend, uh, truly upend the therapeutic relationship when patients themselves come to understand that indeed is not the case. Uh, so you want to evaluate the, uh, the risk for respiratory depression. That gives you objective data to help leverage uh, individuals into making the decision with you to taper. Strongly encourage tapering, taper, uh, taper slowly on, uh, based on individual uh, responses as well. Uh, you want to initiate the conversation, plan, support, informed consent. And I recommend that patients uh, pull up online or otherwise the Ashton Manual. It's a guide that's very readable by them. Uh, it is recommended uh, in large part to consider switching individuals to a long-acting benzodiazepine if they're individuals on a short-acting benzodiazepine. But, uh, diazepam, particularly useful. It has a solution of 2 milligrams per cc, so those very small reductions that you're looking for uh, can make a difference. And when you launch into the tapering process, think of it in terms of at least 18 months, not six months, not 12 months, and to make small reductions that reflect that uh, so that the individual can be success, uh, successful. You don't want to use PRN medica uh, benzodiazepines during this process because we've seen uh, clinically that this can kindle, uh, kindle or fire up uh, and really limit your ability to taper these individuals. And of course, uh, other therapies might be added into this, uh, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy. There are some adjunctive medications. Uh, carbamazepine probably has the best data. And of course, our clinical skills like motivational interviewing, shared decision-making, lots and lots of patients, uh, and collaboration with our psychiatric uh, colleagues as well. What we have is a real challenge in front of us. There is a tension between evidence-based medicine and personalized medicine. Evidence-based medicine is uh, research that's developed on the basis of a, a group of individuals that are felt to be fairly homogeneous, uh, the exclusion factors and so forth, but that probably is not the person sitting in front of you. There's a lot of variation with regards to the medical conditions that they have, the drugs that they're on, the drug-drug interactions, the genetics that they face, their value system and so forth, and it's really important, I think, to pay attention to them as individuals. So around the world, there are at least six gravestones that say, I told them I was sick. And it's amusing, but it's serious because these individuals are really struggling in that regard, and we need to be there for them. 
uh, and really listen to their particular concerns. I've listed a number of recommendations here, uh, but I think the most important recommendation is to listen to your patients. Very often, ben uh, benzodiazepine survivors, very sophisticated, certainly about their own experience, but also often about benzodiazepines, and I've seen where some are indeed much more sophisticated than a lot of us in the medical field about that. It's important to listen. One of the people that I truly listen to is Rumi. Rumi, probably the best poet ever, uh, that's not evidence-based, uh, had to be an alcoholic to re, uh, write these words, the wine we really drink is our own blood. Our bodies ferment in these barrels. We'd give up everything for a glass of this. We'd give up our minds for a sip. Soul drunk, mind ruined. Those two sit helpless in a wrecked wagon. Neither knows how to fix it. And my heart is more like a donkey mired in mud, struggling and sinking deeper. That's the experience of addiction. It's also the experience of individuals with intractable pain. It's also the experience of the benzodiazepine survivors who do not have the disease of addiction but are struggling to step out of that. And with our, our assistance, we can, we can make headway in that regard. So I'm going to go ahead and stop here. And uh, Bob, if you could jump up here. He's going to tell us a little bit about what's behind all this in terms of the neurophysiology. can't help but being impressed by the number of people. I just roughly count something like 250 attendees this afternoon. Dr. Pergolesi started a symposium on benzodiazepines last year. and was a tremendous uh, turnout then, and there's a tremendous turnout again today. And I noticed as Dr. Wright was going through that long litany of adverse effects of both uh, the benzodiazepines and withdrawal from them, I noticed a lot of people nodding their heads, uh, and some of them struck me as surprising to the average healthcare provider who thinks that, you know, the benzodiazepines have been around a long time, they're very good, you know, what's the problem? You know, we must know everything there is to know about them. So hopefully this afternoon's symposium uh, will help establish uh, a basis and mechanism of action to validate what you apparently are seeing uh, clinically and uh, are observing. So uh, in terms of objectives, I guess I could summarize it by saying that the problems, uh, the combined use of benzodiazepines plus opioids, that problem is now very well known. And as it became well known, the FDA responded to that and now addresses that in instructions, uh, guidance, and information on the package insert. And we think that what you're going to hear and continue to hear this afternoon might strike you as thinking that uh, we're raising some possible new concerns and maybe might ultimately lead the FDA to go another step and incorporate these concerns as well. Now, we're not here to trash the benzodiazepines. They were good in their day. They surpassed what was then available, alcohol and barbiturates, and it was very straightforward. They had more selective therapeutic effect, 
and they had fewer adverse effects. But we're probably going to look back in these recent years and say this was just one point in time in the trajectory of treating anxiety disorders. And just like the barbiturates had their problems, it's probably time to say, yes, the benzodiazepines do work if used properly, but they also have their problems as well. Now, in terms of how the benzodiazepines produce their anxiolytic action, this is all very, very well known. One of the areas of pharmacology in which the effects are probably best known in greatest detail. That's good. Maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe we think it's too well known. Maybe we know exactly how it produces one effect and that distracted us from looking at the compound. In other words, the way we have looked at it is, well, the benzodiazepines are anxiolytic. How does that work? Rather than saying we are administering to patients these chemicals, yes, they produce an anxiolytic effect, but geez, what else might they be doing that's not directly related to the anxiolytic effect? So, as Dr. Pergolesi said, all these slides are available to you. Uh, I have the references. You could look up uh, some of these. I'm not going to go into details and in what's already very well-known information. We even know at the individual neuron level what's going on. We're making neurons less likely to fire and in response to excess activity. So if someone is, has excess excitation, is anxious, for reasons that are not explainable, then you tone down the neurons and they, they still can fire, but not to the excess activity. Maybe. Well, who, who decides what excess activity is? At what level? At what level are they no longer only anxiolytic and they do start to inhibit normal neuronal function? I'm not sure that anybody has seriously looked into that because they were such a great advance in the day, I think nobody wanted to you know, find fault with them. So the way they work is at the GABA-A receptor, and GABA is a very important uh, neurotransmitter in the brain. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the two most important because it's balanced with glutamate. And so the two together, if they're in balance, allows you not on the one hand to have constant seizures and on the other hand not to be totally uh, in sedation. But I think we tend to think of these as independent, and they're not. They both are in uh, control of similar mechanisms, and there are feedback loops between them. So if you affect one, you affect the other. So if you're going to affect the GABA receptor or GABA levels, you're automatically, by definition, also affecting other neurotransmitters in the brain, some of the most powerful ones. And I always like to tell my students this, guess where this is occurring, where the glutamate and GABA are in equilibrium? The Krebs cycle. 
the most fundamental energy source of all of our cells. So I want you to remember that. So when you give a compound like a benzodiazepine that affects GABA, it's also affecting other fundamental neurotransmitters, and it, that all feeds back into our basic cellular energy supply mechanisms. You know, so that, I think, right away is one take-home message. We keep teaching that the benzodiazepines have this very specific selective action at GABA-A receptors, when in fact, it's, it's, it probably has the most non-selective action of any other drug that we give. So uh, GABA and glutamate are extremely uh, important in all systems. And I put in red here that all neurons are affected by anything that affects GABA and all glial cells. So those cells that support the energy requirements of neurons and also are involved in immune responses are suddenly involved. So again, these, we thought these were very selective compounds. Now we find out that they're affecting fundamental energy and immune systems in the body. Now, as Dr. Wright said, the benzodiazepines, there's good evidence that they are effective and very good drugs. Uh, there's good evidence for four to eight weeks. That's not how they're commonly used anymore. I mean, in a way, they were so good, they kept being used longer and longer. And, you know, of course, you forget about the four to eight weeks. And then they're applied for situations where they shouldn't be used, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a surprise that, unfortunately, their success has uh, begat some problems as well. So a way of thinking this in a picture is that the benzodiazepines produce uh, benzodiazepine receptor-mediated effects. Those are the ones we know about. But then there are a bunch of off-target effects. In other words, what are the drugs doing that we aren't intending to do? And that's what gets us into these very fundamental uh, other systems. In terms of adverse effects, you saw some of these. Uh, you saw some of the most common ones. And, uh, you know, we, we could try to figure out what some of these are due to, but they sort of all make sense based on how these drugs work. But then you also saw some of the longer list, and you begin to say, well, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? You know, am I looking at a patient and thinking, if I see some of these things, am I thinking, boy, the benzodiazepines might be causing that? And then further, you heard Dr. Wright talk about physical dependence and withdrawal. And, you know, some of these things are normal. The development of tolerance is normal. The development of physical dependence is normal. And in withdrawal, you tend to see the now unopposed bodies counteracting what the drug was sort of forcing it to do. So some of the uh, effects you see, even in withdrawal, are very understandable. If the drug is anxiolytic, you would expect to see anxiety and withdrawal. But then you see things like this, and you go, wait a minute, this is what we see in protracted or prolonged withdrawal. And I'm being generous here. In red, I have those that I just find curious. 
I cannot go with a straight line from GABA-A receptor to these effects, whether uh, direct or during withdrawal. And I'm being very generous. I tried as hard as I could to have as few reds as possible. But I can't make the connection. And so it's not obvious to me. And so I go back to then what are the possibilities clinically, and then I'll come back and talk about a hypothesis about what might be going on here. So I began to think of this. You know, as you read the literature, you think of your own patients. You know, is there a yes or no answer? No. But what are the possibilities? Well, here's the good possibility. That you have a patient and they have good response to the, a good anxiolytic response to the drug. Uh, the adverse effects are pretty mild. Withdrawal, if any, is mild. And even you start giving it long term and life is good. You still have full efficacy and not many problems. Okay, so this doesn't need very many guidelines or guidance or warnings, but I'm going to propose that this gave us a false sense of security and safety. Because if you say, what are the other possibilities? <laughs> there are more of these than good outcome. So you have, for example, good efficacy, you know, no problems. Then you have good efficacy, but adverse effects, either acutely or long-term, that's not good. Or you have poor outcome right from the start. Or you have poor outcome in long-term administration. So if you just simply count the number of not-so-good outcomes, it far exceeds the good outcome. Now, luckily, that one line, which is good outcome, dominates. So by far, more number of patients have good outcome. But I don't think it should surprise anybody, it, but it did surprise me when I made this table. Oh my goodness, I don't know what number we want to put into any of these categories, but even if it's 5 or 10%, that adds up to a lot of people who are either not getting a therapeutic effect of the benzodiazepines, or they're having problems due to them, or they're having problems during withdrawal. So the benzodiazepines are located all over the place, on all neurons, throughout the brain, on glial cells, and you, know, you start to say, well, wait a minute, who has studied this? Everybody in the benzodiazepine field have studied GABA-A receptors. Who studied this? Nobody, because it doesn't directly relate to the therapeutic effect, but it might clearly begin to explain those long tables of otherwise very confusing adverse effects. So in the interest of time, I'm going to skip through some of these slides that you do have available to you. I just want to mention something. So when we say GABA-A receptor, how many GABA-A receptors are there in the brain? We talk as if there's one. There's lots of them. You gotta multiply six different alpha subunits by four, by three. There's lots and lots of GABA-A receptors. And with polymorphisms, there's gonna be a lot of patients who will not have the same distribution of GABA-A receptors as other patients. 
and they're not going to respond the same way to the drugs, and they're going to go through withdrawal in a slightly different way. Also, there are other benzodiazepine binding sites, and this is going to be in the nature of a hypothesis, but I think it is consistent with some of the problems we're seeing, and uh, benzodiazepines also bind to other binding sites. So yes, they bind to GABA-A, but other binding sites as well. A lot of these are in the periphery. Who knew? There's no pharmacologist or clinician of IIS. And I said, have you heard of these peripheral benzodiazepine receptors? There might be a couple, but all the ones I've asked have said no. I never knew about them. I taught this topic for years. Never came up. I never knew about it. Part of the reason is that they're not called peripheral benzodiazepine receptors. And I have to look. They're called translocator protein, TSPOs. They're nothing to do with the CNS. That's why a CNS pharmacologist hasn't heard about that. But let's look at them. The benzodiazepines bind to them. They produce effects there. Where are they? They're on mitochondria, the energy supply to the cell. Where are they? They are on the immune system. Okay? So we have to now think of, you know, where do, where's the anxiolytic action? Here. But what happens to a patient that you give benzodiazepines to or withdraw from? They are on both. Well, are there just a few of these peripheral ones? No. They're all over. They're everywhere in the periphery, right? Of course, they're on mitochondria and immune cells. When was the last time you saw a scan in which basically the entire body lit up? So you have to begin to say to yourself, you know, well, what would a person look like if you're monkeying with their mitochondria, their energy supplies, their immune system, and then you go back to some of those uh, prolonged adverse effects of withdrawal, and what are you reading? Fatigue, right? So the patient goes to the physician and says, you know, I have a little bit of fatigue. Oh, really? Yeah, well, so do I, <laughs> right? Uh, and, oh, you know what, I, I think I have an extra cold every year. Okay, well, it was a bad year for colds. You know, I think that I'm not concentrating as well as I used to. Yeah, well, you're older than you used to be. So there's always an excuse. And then, you know, I think we have to be fair. You know, it, it would be logical to think, well, you know what, I don't know why you were on a CNS drug to the in the first place. Maybe you got problems. Maybe you're a hypochondriac. Maybe you can't handle normal anxiety. I don't know, and I don't have time. So it is easy to blow these people off. But I think thinking about a peripheral benzodiazepine receptor or some other very logical mechanism that we have, it's the dark ages. When we figured about, out about the GABA-A receptor, we stopped looking. And now there's more of these receptors than GABA-A receptors in the brain, and they might begin to validate the patients. And maybe, maybe if nothing else, that's the most important Thing about these receptors in the periphery. It means that maybe what the patients are saying is right. And maybe it's okay that no two of them have the exact same symptoms because they have different energy levels, they have different immune systems, etc. So these are 
nebulous things that are hard to pin down. So it may be like lupus. 12 possible diagnostic criteria. That means some patient, two patients can both have lupus and not share any of the same symptoms. So it may be the same thing that we're going to find out here. So the hypothesis is that there are uh, a myriad and patient-specific adverse effects, either by direct treatment or doing withdrawal. And the withdrawal symptoms, we now think, has a physical, physiological, possible explanation. And this has to do with a peripheral benzodiazepine receptor that nobody's been studying to make the connection. They've been studying it for mitochondria. Maybe it's time we think drug-centric. You're administering a drug to the patient. What is it doing in the entire body, not just at the GABA-A receptor in its anxiolytic function? So with that, uh, I thank you very much, and hopefully... Well, hopefully we've simulated your ideas and we have some time for questions. Yes, I want to thank all of you. And again, you know, part of what we try to do here at Pain Week is bring frontline information to you. So I applaud uh, Bob and Steve. Uh, very uh, interesting, innovative data. Any questions from the audience? Yes. Hold on. Maybe I'll bring you the mic. Uh, you insinuated that they might. I'm sorry. I didn't hear much about Zolpidem or the drugs in that class, and you insinuated that you thought they were safer. I, I don't know about the uh, in combination. I do know that when I use them, I have more acute side effects than I do with, right. with the traditional ones. Yeah, I'm sorry. The question had to do with the so-called Z drugs, and I had them list. I had the term up there, but I didn't say that. It, that's a very unfortunate term, and this whole field is full of unfortunate terms. But those drugs are all benzodiazepine receptor modifiers, just like the benzodiazepines. So the benzodiazepines is a chemical class. The Z drugs are a chemical class. The receptor is the same for all of them. So everything I said would apply to all of them, and, and you're, you're finding the same thing clinically. Okay, thank you. I wonder how, how do you really, how, how do people really come up with this information that these side effects are really coming from the medication as opposed to the underlying disease entity? We're told that PPIs cause, you know, all kinds of problems now as well, chronic kidney disease and dementia and, and things. And you're, one wonders really, you know, there's certainly no long-term randomized controlled trials to say, you know, this absolutely happens because of benzos. The underlying right. disease process may be the pul culprit as well. Right. Generalized anxiety disorder, uh, OCD. How can, you, yes. how can you possibly separate these things out? Well, that's because we're at the very earliest stages of this, and the patients have been saying this, and that's why I'm excited about a possible mechanism, because we can now say, you know what, they might be right. And I think if you look at that table of all the possible outcomes, I guess I could add another possible outcome, and this is just disease progression. And I think you look at that and you say, 
could it possibly be true that, some, that most of those lines are zero patients? And so whatever number you would like to put on them, I think there's going to be a certain subpopulation. It's going to be a subpopulation, by no means the majority. But there's going to be a subpopulation of patients who are going to be on each one of those lines, and they're the ones that are having problems. And at right now, we have to trust them and follow up with studies that you suggest. And I agree with you. you you are right to be cynical right now, but those, I think we're just on day one. We have to follow the patients and see whether what they're saying is, can be documented or not, and at least alert the FDA to the possibility that maybe there's a signal here. Maybe we're in the earliest stages of a signal that a few years from now we'll be able to better document. If I could go ahead and add to that. You're absolutely right, this is a particular challenge. You know, is there a relapse of the underlying medical condition? Is there a rebound in which, you know, there's a rise above the baseline level that was there previously? Is it simply withdrawal? But there's a pattern that kind of arises out of looking at the studies as a whole, where it's not just anxiety that rises back up or comes back down, uh, but it's connected to other somatic complaints. So, for example, individuals that uh, have a, a, an array of uh, musculoskeletal as, as well as uh, neurologic electric shock-like sensations and so forth that sound uh, more physiologic uh, and not related to the underlying disorder. We, it really is to a certain extent at the anecdotal part of, of, of the studies of all of this but we uh, not infrequently hear of individuals for whom benzodiazepines were used to treat tinnitus and somebody ends up with anxiety. Is this an anxiety disorder that developed de novo? Is it a pain disorder that developed de novo? There's going to need to be a, a, a lot of sorting out in that regard. However, the, uh, the pattern is such that it really is suggestive that benzodiazepines may be creating a central and may per peripheral uh, injury in relation to the neuropsychological pathways that we're looking at. I think, I think you could think of us as, all in the room maybe, as the canary. And I think this is how it starts. I mean, drug discovery, disease modification, uh, disease chronicity. It starts off with understanding and having an idea that you might be able to empirically explore. And so I think that's what uh, we showed you today, that there is something out there. We know the patients are reporting these type of prolonged withdrawal syndromes. And it's our duty now and our call to figure out what it is whether it is a uh, chronification of the disease with a, a multi-etiological symptomatology or whether it is some type of culpability to this class of drugs. Last question. Um, thank you very much. You know, thank you for really a great lecture. I think uh, this uh, Benzo lecture was really one of the principal reasons why I, I came to the, to the conference at all. Right? Uh, I'm a primary care guy out in, in uh, California. And, uh, you know, of course, I don't, I don't need to tell you that uh, in, in the conference, you know, almost everything, you know, the benzos have been implicated one way or another, but, but this is really the only lecture where, 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 uh, where you really told us about benzodiazepines. And, and to a large extent, I think that what's happening out there is, you know, people really are dying because we as the practitioners don't really know, you know, how to, how, how to uh, uh, manage benzodiazepines, right? And, and, and the question I'd like to ask you is, I, I just went to another lecture recently where they said, uh, 
it's almost impossible to wean people off benzodiazepines. They will just not do it. And it really has been my experience. I've tried very, very hard. And, and the only way that I can really get people off of benzodiazepines is to say, I'm just not going to write it for you anymore. I, I'm done. I've done it for three or six or whatever months. And, 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 um, and otherwise, people would just not come off of the benzodiazepines. And I wonder if you have any kind of suggestions or help on you know, how to get people off of benzodiazepines. Sure. Um, you know, excellent question. And I think it's the way that we do the tapering that's really critically important. Uh, one of the most important things, I think, is the preparation. Individuals that have support and family, uh, you know, the informed consent, uh, recognition that this is a very long process and the potential for uh, indefinite symptoms uh, that are going to be, you know, in, in the withdrawal range are present there. If you look at some of the studies, and I think Heather Ashton does, does the best job of that, and this was a 1988 or 87 uh, piece of work, just 50 patients, 6% uh, uh, of individuals were not able to be withdrawn. So that's a minority uh, withdrawn without symptoms. 100% were actually withdrawn. A single individual relapsed into benzodiazepine use. It has a lot to do, I think, with the patients. And so starting out with a plan, starting out with an attempt to move to a long-acting benzodiazepine, go slower than you think you will need to, look at an 18-month window, add cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps adjunctive medications, best out there uh, that's looked at is carbamazepine, uh, gabapentin uh, is out there uh, as well, but it really is an iterative process where listening to the patient is really important in terms of their symptom complex that's coming forward. And I got some of my best ideas from patients in that interactive process, uh, not something that I thought of myself, but they give me clues uh, themselves as to how to do this. Uh, I think the support is really critical. I'll add one Thank thing. From, uh, from a clinical trialist standpoint, you know, as we start to discover and understand better what Bob and his group and Bob Taylor and others are going to look at, uh, I, I, I try to think about how would I design a clinical trial around this? What if there is that subset of patients that I expose and they do have this prolonged you know, peripheral benzodiazepine receptor-driven side effects. I mean, that, that could take years. Is that ethically responsible? I mean, I, so, so for me, as I start to even think about how I'm going to be helping uh, with the discovery part, it becomes very challenging. One last question by Dr. Pippin. Actually, a comment. Uh, practiced for 25 years in pain medicine. I'm, I'm a benzophobe. And uh, one of the first things I try would do is get people off. And, Steve, you're right. I mean, you can taper these people, but it takes time. Um, the interesting thing is there's not a lot, at least in my opinion, of application of benzos. I mean, let's be honest. There's just not a lot of place. It, it's not good for pain. It's not, I mean, if you have someone who has spasticity, it's a different situation. But generally for chronic pain patients, there's no role for them. If you have a panic disorder, short-acting benzos. You shouldn't be giving Xanax. It takes Xanax off the market. So just as a, as a comment, we, we way overuse these medications, and you can taper, and we should taper. 